Well, this morning, uh, we're taking a break from our series, and we're we're going to be looking at the biblical topic of money and giving. Uh, We'll be looking at several verses. It'll be a Bible study of sorts as we walk through many of the Proverbs, many of the sayings of Jesus. Um, But to begin, I will be reading Proverbs 22, 1 and 2, Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, and Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Father, we pray that you would take our hearts now and prepare them to receive your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you can tell in this service, our focus is on missions and particularly the Wilson Smith Memorial Project, the ministry that we just heard about in India to the Unreached People Group. And on top of that, next week we'll be starting taking our offering in the service. Uh, Offerings have continued, but we're going to be taking it in the service now. Um, And so I'm thankful for the ushers who have signed up as we we do that. But in light of those things, I I think it's an important uh, thing for us to understand biblically the importance of giving, Uh, why we take an offering, um, and why we do that in worship. Yes, it helps uh, cover the bills. Yes, it'll help cover the cost of the new AC unit we're probably going to need. But it's more than that. Uh, We're not just a club that needs funds. Uh, We are being obedient to God. The Scripture has a lot to say about uh, giving, about money. What you think about money and how you spend it speaks volumes about what you think about. Is what you think that is is important? How important you think Christ Church is? How important you think local and global outreach is? How important you think it is to spread the gospel here and abroad? How important you think it is to obey the Word of God in all of life. Um, And Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so giving is important. How you handle your funds, how you handle your money reveals a lot about the depth of your commitment to Christ. Uh, It's been said, show me your checkbook and I'll tell you what your passion is. And see, that is why Jesus talked about money so often. One commentator noted that by some estimates, Jesus spent one-sixth of the Gospels, including one in every three parables, touching on this topic of money or stewardship or giving. He goes on to say, Jesus wasn't a fundraiser. We want to get it wrong. But, but he dealt with money because money does indeed matter. And so what we need is a godly biblical wisdom when it comes to wealth. 
As I said, and, and so in light of the India project and in light of uh, adding back the offering, I want to tackle this topic of giving. I want to do it under two main headings, a, the, a wise perspective on wealth, and second, the wise use of your wealth. Now, giving is not a topic, pastors, uh, that are not in the health and wealth genre of pastors like talking about. Uh, or some people say, all they do is talk about money. That's not true here. Um, but it needs to be talked about. Why? Because it is biblical to talk about it. Uh, a wise perspective on it, a wise use of it. And we're going to walk through several passages. And as we do, I want you to ask yourself, in light of what the Word of God says, do you believe that God is calling you to give more or to begin giving uh, to give to missions, for example. And before I look at these two points, though, we're going to be walking through a lot of the Proverbs. And, and I think it's important that we understand how the Proverbs work in Scripture, how the individual Proverbs work. Proverbs, these wise sayings, these collection of sayings, are not necessarily laws or promises. But what they do is they look at life and glean from life from these observations on how things usually work. And so when you apply a proverb, you have to be careful. You need to have actual wisdom or you run into danger of misapplying it. I mentioned the health and wealth prosperity speakers. They, they do that all the time. Uh, let me give you an example. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, uh, many people have taught that godliness... If you live a godly life, it'll automatically lead to wealth. Why? Because this, listen to what the passage says. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You're just going to be overflowing with money if you're obedient to God. It seems to indicate this cause and effect, right? Honor the Lord and you'll become rich. That's how some teach it. But see, that's a misapplication of what Proverbs does. There are other Proverbs that acknowledge that fools are rich, uh, and even that godly may have to be, uh, must choose between wealth and wisdom. And, and, and so, better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse, says Proverbs 28.6. And so we need to be careful is the point. A righteous person may not become rich, and just because someone's poor is saying nothing about their spiritual maturity. You know, these health and wealth preachers couldn't preach these gospels in India, right? And so if you can't preach it in India, it can't be biblical, period. I'm not going to go off onto that. So we must be careful is the point. The Apostle Paul rebukes those who, who see godliness as a means of gain. He writes, those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, 1 Timothy 6.5. And so we need to, as we read through this, we need to use discernment when applying these principles. Well, let's begin. Let's look at a wise perspective on wealth. Uh, when, when it comes to wealth, people have these conflicting ideas. Some people actually think, well, it's sinful to be rich if you're a Christian, and others think it's a virtue to be poor, uh, and neither are true. Taking a vow of poverty will not necessarily lead to godliness any more than riches will. And, and, and in fact, this is why Proverbs says, give me neither poverty nor riches, 
feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Well, I have so much, I don't need God. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And so I don't want to be rich, I don't want to be poor, the proverb says, 38 and 9. Now, I'm guessing, I don't know all of you, but my guess is you're not struggling with the, the decision to take a vow of poverty. Not many people are doing that in America nowadays. But where we do struggle, especially in America, is always wanting more. It's a general struggle. It may not be yours in particular, but it's a general struggle in America. Many people give their whole lives over. We talked about this already in Ecclesiastes in some way. Give their whole lives over to accumulating riches, wealth, and treasures. And they want to find meaning there. Well, we learn from Proverbs, you're not going to find that. Uh, Proverbs is clear. Having riches is not where you're going to find your best life now. I don't care what the best-selling book says. It's not going to happen. There are many things Proverbs says that are much better than wealth. Let's look at a couple. Wisdom is better than wealth. This is what Proverbs 3 says. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her, from who? From wisdom, is better than the gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. Get wisdom, not necessarily wealth. Love is better than wealth. Proverbs 15, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Uh, righteousness and justice are better than wealth. Proverbs 16.8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Humility is better than wealth. Proverbs 16.19, it's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. A, a peaceful home is better than wealth. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Truth is better than wealth. Better to be poor than a liar. Integrity is better than wealth. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor than silver or gold. That's Proverbs 22. And Proverbs 28 says a good reputation is better than wealth. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. And see, if you're called upon to choose between these virtues or a larger paycheck, well, God is making clear his perspective. Wisdom, love, righteousness, humility, peace, truth, integrity, and a good reputation, they far, far exceed the benefits of wealth. It's not saying that if you get wealth, you can't also have these virtues. It's saying that you should not compromise for wealth, any of these virtues. They're worthy of your investment. And how often, though? We see it all the time. How often do people throw these virtues away, truth, lies, righteousness, anything, in order to climb the corporate ladder, in order to make an extra buck? Uh, people like that, they, they think they're being rich, right? They're the smart ones. They're the wise ones. They're getting more money. And all you had to do is stretch the truth a little, and you wouldn't be so poor. And they think that they are living the dream. But according to God's world, word, and those who, those who would shun spiritual virtues in order to acquire worldly wealth, they're actually living a nightmare. They're living a lie. You see this in the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. Jesus says this in chapter 3. They say, I am rich. I have prospered. 
and I need nothing, not realizing that they are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Oh, they had worldly wealth, uh, but they were still wretched, pitiful, and poor. Now, don't get me wrong. We know it would be a lie to say that money doesn't give us some sense of security. It's important, of course. You need to work. You need to make a a living. But ultimately, the the security of wealth is an illusion. It, It could be here today and lost in the stock market tomorrow. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5 say, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Here today and gone tomorrow. Proverbs 18, 11, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. See, believing your wealth will give you true security is, is, is a foolish belief. It, it's a misplaced faith. It's a, it, it, the Proverbs say it's a figment of your imagination. Security cannot be bought. Uh, Proverbs eleven twenty eight: he who trusts in his riches will fall, we're told. And many a man has proven this over and over and over again. Apostle Paul said this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, notice he didn't say, get rid of your riches, sell everything. He doesn't say that. He says, be generous. Put God first. Don't look for security and riches. Look where? Look to him. Look to God. Look, at, look to Christ. And that leads to our next reality concerning wealth. Proverbs 11.4 says, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Now, this may seem obvious. You're not going to go up to heaven and hand a paycheck and you're going to get let in. Well, that seems obvious. But Solomon seemed to have to share that with someone. And as silly as it sounds, I have heard people say, well, that person can't be. You're, you're telling me so-and-so, whoever this popular person is, is going to hell? Obviously, they're getting in. Well, why would you say that? Well, they're famous. I mean, I've heard somebody say that. That's the definition of foolishness. See, it it, it may seem obvious, but we need to be reminded of it. God's grace can never be bought. Proverbs 11 continues, The righteous of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithful are trapped by evil desires. When a wicked man dies, his hope perishes. All he expected from his power comes to nothing. See, See, earthly riches do bring earthly power. No doubt about it but they have no power to save. In fact, not only can earthly riches not save you, they can actually become a stumbling block in the way of you receiving salvation. That's what Jesus said, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, Luke 18, 25. See, what happens is that riches have a tendency to produce pride, and only the humble inherit the kingdom of God. 
And so God opposes the proud, says the Apostle Peter, but he gives grace to the humble. And so only by grace can you be saved. That's the illustration that we get with the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus wanting to know what he needed to be saved. And Jesus said, get rid of everything. It was a test. And he was unwilling to do it. His money was his God. And as Scripture says, Matthew 6, Jesus, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You cannot serve God in money. And so your perspective on wealth, it actually has eternal ramifications. You must see it for what it is, a means to an end. It is. We need it. We need money, but not an end in itself. True riches are found where? As I said, only in Christ. That's what the apostle Paul believed. He said, speaking of Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. See, it's only in Christ and him alone that true riches are found. That is the scriptural teaching. One writer said, the Lord Jesus is heaven's great storehouse in whom is laid up all treasures, and from whom we are to receive all our supplies. All that we can need, all that we can enjoy, all that we can desire is found in Christ. All the perfections and attributes of God are found in Him. All the promises of God are in Christ. All the blessings of grace are in Christ. All the riches of glory are found in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him, and from him alone we must receive them. Christ alone. And so remember, only in Christ can you find security, both in this world and especially in the next. And so in light of that, in light of that, let me ask the question, which God are you serving? Which God are you committed to? Before whom do you fall down in worship? Is it Almighty God or is it the Almighty dollar? See, my plea for, for those who are caught up in the rat race, as it were, of, of accumulating wealth and making it a God, that you would turn to Christ and that you wouldn't let earthly riches hold you back. That you would turn, you would turn and repent and cry out for salvation. Our opening verse says this, do not toil to acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. That's the, that's the call, desist. It means to stop, it means to cease, to give up that fruitless pursuit. Why? Because someday you'll leave this world. And all your earthly riches, all your gain, all your wealth, all your treasures will be left behind. They will matter not at all. They will do you no good on that day when you face the judgment of God. That was Jesus' point in the parable of the rich fool when he said to repent in Luke 12. And so repent. Stop storing up treasures here on earth where moth, as Jesus said, and and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And begin today to store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. That's Matthew 6. That's all these scriptures, all about money and wealth. And on that note, we're in a good position to look at our second point. How do we use it then? It's important. It can have eternal ramifications. How do we use it? 
See, as believers in Christ's church, we are called upon by our Lord to demonstrate a, a completely different view of finances and money and wealth than the world. Why? Because we're united to Christ. He has authority over us. And so we must be wise in how we spend our money. And the best place to begin when it comes to money that you say you accumulated is to remember that we are stewards and not owners of our material possessions. We are stewards, not owners. God is the sovereign owner of all things including every material possession you have. He is the master, we are the servant. And he's entrusted us with this property, and what I'm talking about here is obviously money, and he's saying be a good steward of that money. It's like the parable of the talents in in Matthew 25. The master gives to each according to his ability. And he expects you to be responsible. He expects you to treat his possessions with great care. And he expects you that you will remember that someday he's going to return and you will be examined on how you did as a steward of his resources. And if you are faithful, you will be rewarded. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master, Matthew 25, 21. And so when it comes to the wise use of your money, you must approach it as a steward, a steward, recognizing that you're accountable to God for every expenditure, every expenditure. And if that is true, the best way to prioritize your spending is to do it this way. You begin upward, then outward, and then inward. Upward, outward, inward. See, Scripture shares for us several priorities we are to have when we use our money. Now, I'm going to walk through a few of these. You have an obligation to provide for the needs of the poor. That's one thing we'll be doing in this project with India. Proverbs 14, 21, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. You have an obligation to provide for the needs of your household. 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You even have the obligation to make provision for the future. There's nothing unbiblical about preparing financially for the future. Proverbs 6 talks about the ant. And it says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. You're preparing for a winter's day, for a rainy day, we may say. However, on top of all those obligations, and they're important, another one is you have an obligation to give to God and the mission and work of Christ church. That's an obligation, and that's where I want to focus because we're focusing on missions here. Look again at Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10. While you're turning there, I'm going to drink some water. We're going to fix that air conditioner. (laughs) Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, for the Israelite, it was an act of faith to give from the first of their crops. They didn't know how the harvest was going to go. 
And so it could have, they could have hesitated, saying, if I give this, what if something, you know, I don't have anything in the future. Um, and so holding on. But what the Israelite was doing by giving of their first fruits was exercising faith in God. They were saying, I acknowledge that God knows what I need, that he is in control of the harvest, and he will provide everything that I need. And see, when you give first to God and the mission and work of Christ's church, when he gets the first check after the deposit is made, you're saying, God, you're in control, and you will supply all my needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's why we give, and that's why we give the first fruits. Now, understand that this principle of giving from your first fruits is an abiding principle. It's for everybody, not just for the Israelites. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16 says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. Every Sunday, they gather and they take a collection. This is why we're adding it. We want you to understand why it's important that it's in the worship service. It's, it's part of worship. Paul commands it. See, this type of giving is an extreme act of faith. When you give faithfully and, 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 and sacrificially, especially in tough financial times, you're testifying to the fact that you believe God is able and God is willing to meet my need if he arises. And so the question I have is, do you believe that? Do you believe God loves you enough to meet your need? Do you, do you believe that he understands your situation in order to meet your need? And not only that he loves you and he understands it, but he's actually powerful enough to meet your needs. See, your view of God affects your giving. If you believe he truly loves you, if you believe he's omniscient and knows your need, and if you believe that he's omnipotent and is able to meet your need, then you will unconditionally, and let me add, joyfully give to the mission and work of Christ's church. Joyfully. God loves a joyful giver, a cheerful giver. We read this in 2 Corinthians. This is another passage we find in Scripture on giving. Paul writes, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that's what we focus on when we read this passage. A lot of sermons on this. But notice the other truths that are found here. Notice you're not under obligation to give a set amount. It says, each one must give as he is made up in his mind. I cannot enforce you to give 10% if you join our church. That's why I don't believe that God requires a tithe. And you say, good, I can give 1%. Well, you could, I guess. I'm not going to punish you. I can't do that. I wouldn't do that. But even as I say that, don't misunderstand. See, put it, this in the proper perspective. If in the Old Testament... They required a tithe, and much more, by the way, because there was more than one tithe. But they required a tithe. How much more should we give in light of what we now know? One writer said it this way. He says, I'll tell you why you don't see the tithing requirement laid out clearly in the New Testament. And then he says, think about this. 
Have we received more of God's revelation, truth, and grace than the Old Testament believers or less? Are we more debtors to grace than they were or less? Did Jesus tithe his life and blood to save us or, or, or did he give it all? Tithing is a minimum standard for Christian believers. We certainly wouldn't want to be in a position of giving away less of our income than those who had so much less of an understanding of what God did to save them. Now, that's not saying if you're given less than 10%, you're in sin. Each has to give as they've determined in their mind, as they looked at their finances. But here's the point the apostle makes. If you sow sparingly, then you will reap sparingly. A stingy giver should not expect much blessing from God in return. That's what it says. If you sow bountifully, well, God will reward your act of faith. You will reap bountifully. See, in order not to be health and wealth prosperity preachers, we avoid this kind of thing, but we also have to realize this is what Scripture teaches. God will make all grace abound to you, and you will abound in every good work. Paul says it. This is what Proverbs says. Honor God with your first fruits. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You hear something similar in Malachi. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And therefore, I put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 6, give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. See, Scripture's clear. Giving results in blessing. It results in blessing. Now, don't misunderstand this either. We're not investing in God with the idea that we're going to get a, a financial blessing in return. Rather, we're honoring God with what is His. It, it belongs to Him, and we're trusting Him with the outcome, putting Him, quote, to the test, as it were. And He promises if we do that, He will bless us. It may or may not be a financial blessing, but it will surely include a spiritual blessing. Or Jesus calls them storing up treasures in heaven. In either case, understand, if we take God at his word, we must conclude that there is blessing for every one of us who are willing to give to the mission and work of Christ church. There is a blessing promised to you. Well, in light of all that has been said about the use of our money in the kingdom of God, I want to close with some quick practical applications, some principles for giving. Just five, real quick, and we can go outside in the cool weather. <laughs> the first is you must give purposefully and faithfully. You have to plan. You know, we have an offering next Sunday, and you're going to say, oh, I got to give. And you reach into your pocket or your wallet, and you hope nobody carries cash today, but you, you have cash in there, and you drop it in. Praise God that you're, you're, you're willing to give, but that's not purposefully. You haven't planned for it. It's not being faithful in giving if all you do is just kind of take whatever happens to be there on a Sunday. Um, and so you need to plan for it. Um, and that includes looking at your income, looking at your debt, looking at all these things. And, and that leads to the second thing. And then saying, how can I sacrifice? You should give sacrificially. 
Now, for one person, that may be next to nothing. For another, that may be a lot. The point isn't how much. The point is, if you're in an unfortunate position where you're paying debt, you should pay those debts, but there's probably something that you can give up in order to give. And I'll share a personal example. When I first started going to 10th Presbyterian Church and serving as an intern, I noticed that we were hardly giving. And I, and I met with Pastor Riken, and I said, you know, look at you know, where we're at here. I'm kind of working for free, and you know, we have children, and I'm going to school. And he said, well, this is what I would like you to do. Look at your life. Look at, look at all your expenditures. Is there a place you can sacrifice? And it was, it was movies. And so we gave up going to movies for a time. And, and, and so we could give that money, not a lot, uh, but we could give that money to the church. There was a sacrifice. That's a silly example. It wasn't too sacrificial. It's, you know, I'm giving my life or anything. But it was movies. It was something I could give up. And so you need to give sacrificially. You need to give purposely, faithfully, sacrificially. You need to give expectantly. That's what I was saying. God will bless you. And so as you work this out and you figure out how much you should give to the church and then over and above to, say, the Indian mission, as you do that, expect God to bless you. Expect them to strengthen your faith. Expect them to meet your needs. Again, it's not a, a give and take here. Well, you know, I'll give $500 and then God will triple fold that and then I'll, I'll make, it's not, it's not that kind of investment. It's investment in uh, the church of Christ for the glory of God. And you must give joyfully. Think about it. How can giving to the mission and work of Christ Church not be a joyful endeavor? Did you hear the report that Bill Tate gave? See, we don't understand it because we haven't seen, most of us, if, all of us haven't seen real revival in America. They're seeing that a little bit there. And, and, and it's amazing. And when you hear 800 converts, can you name 10 or 8 converts, let alone 800. When you see that, how can it not be joyful to know that I'm giving this dollar every day? I'm giving $365. I'm giving this money. Why? Because the gospel is going to be spreading. He's going to bless you for doing it. Fifth, and I just mentioned this, but give missionally. Give for the purpose of spreading the gospel. That is what the church is here for. Yes, we have to pay our debts. Yes, jokingly, we have to fix the AC unit. Yes, we want to renovate this and that. We want to do all those things. And I think they're important for the glory of God. I do. But it's, it goes beyond that. So as we're established here as the beacon on the hill, and we can continue because the money comes, we can then be a light to our culture, to our, our, our city, our town, our county. We can be a light to the nations as we spread the gospel, not only here, but abroad. And it's an opportunity, this is. The India Project is an opportunity for you to purposely, faithfully, sacrificially, and joyfully give, expecting God to bless them and to bless you. The point is simple. God is your master and king. He is your master and king. And he's calling you to give. I can't tell you the exact amount, but he's calling you to give. And so will you respond? Will you respond for the sake of Christ church here and around the world? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And we know how easy it is for us here in America, myself included, uh, to get caught up in the things of this world. 
the trappings of materialism and unwilling to give up sacrifice at times as we don't see immediate fruit from our endeavors. I pray, Lord, that you would give us faith, faith to trust, faith to give our first fruits, and that, Lord, you would indeed pour out a blessing here at St. Stephen and around the world as we share the gospel through our giving. In Christ's name, amen.